Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. We're back after our short break, no longer jet-lagged, and ready to get back into some history. Now, last episode, we covered the crucial Treaty of Andalo, which marked the formal settlement of many of the disputes that had previously driven a wedge between King Guntram and his nephew's Austrasian court. But, of course, a single well-meaning treaty wasn't enough to clean up the quagmire that was Merovingian politics, so tensions and disagreement inevitably returned. This episode, we're going to study these issues, discuss why Merovingian politics was constantly contentious, and analyse the importance of church figures like Gregory in keeping the peace. It's some of my favourite topics, politics and diplomacy, in episode 58, Thank God for the Bishops. Let's get into the context first. The Treaty of Andalo had been signed, and it was a significant development. It gave a framework for the division of power in the realms of Guntram and Childebert, and it also set out a rough path for relations between the Austrasian royals, including Brunhild, and Guntram for the future. Yet, only a year after it was signed, tensions had once again arisen. Gregory was on his way to his new overlord Childebert's court at Metz, when he received a request to turn around and instead head to Guntram, and act as Childebert's ambassador to the senior king. Gregory did so, finding Guntram at the town of Chalons-sur-Saint. Guntram was angry. This is perhaps not surprising, he was angry a lot in this period. But in this case, he was specifically angry at Childebert, for apparently failing to uphold some of the promises he had made in the treaty. See. In reality, the treaty was a bit of a double-edged sword. We might think the formal settlement of the disputes, especially the land claims of Childebert and Brunhild, would remove the triggers for conflict, and mostly they did. But with a formal written agreement, it was also easy to point to the written promises and argue that they were not being fully upheld. And this is exactly what Guntram did. It is unclear whether Childebert knew the specifics of Guntram's complaints, and thus how prepared for the encounter Gregory actually was. When he arrived, he gave a fairly neutral speech, simply stating Childebert's warm feelings towards Guntram, and his pledge to uphold the treaty. It is Guntram who brings up his specific gripe, and there were only two of them. First, Childebert had not released one-third of the town of Saint-Lys to Guntram, as he had agreed. This was a fairly minor issue. One-third of a minor town is nothing to start a war over. The other issue was the return of men from Guntram's realm, who had, for various reasons, entered the service of King Childebert instead. This was a much thornier issue. Let's discuss the land dispute first. While Sonlis was not a particularly important town, and Guntram's issue was of fairly minor importance, it does reveal a key issue in diplomacy in this period. Guntram, Childebert, and Brunhild had sat around a table and agreed on an equitable division of the lands of Gaul that they controlled. 
But that does not mean that things on the ground magically change to match their decisions. And I'm not talking about rebellion and defiance, like it happened in Tours and Poitiers. I'm simply talking about the failings of Merovingian administration. Now, there is always the chance that Childebert was deliberately breaking the Treaty over Sonlis. It seems a weirdly small and unimportant town to risk angering Guntram over, but it may have been a way of testing Guntram's resolve. If he failed to notice or didn't force the issue of Sonlis, then maybe Childebert could have pushed more and seen what else he could have gotten away with. But this does seem fairly unlikely to me. Much more likely is that it was simply a failure of the administration. As we've discussed before, Merovingian administration was pretty abysmal. They were only really interested in income and had let all other parts of the old Roman system wither away. Authority was also confused. The rising power of the nobility was changing the equation for both royal authority in the regions and church authority in the towns and cities. To put it simply, there were no hard and fast rules about how things were meant to be run, and mostly we can best describe the situation in the provinces as a hot mess. In and amongst all of this mess, local authorities had to try and abide by the orders of the royals, no matter how out of the blue or oddly specific they were. Imagine you're an Austrasian count, and Sonlis falls under your authority you get sent a copy of the Treaty of Underlo, or at least a messenger informs you of it verbally, as you probably can't read Latin. It says simply that Childebert will hold under his dominion two-thirds of Sonlis, with one-third going to Guntram. Sounds nice and simple on paper, but what does this mean for you on the ground? You know, the royals in the past have mostly been interested in income, so you could just send a third of your incomes from Sonlis to Guntram. But it's not quite as simple as that. Most of the income likely won't come from Sonlis itself. It will come from the surrounding farms and estates. Land was the basis of economic activity in this period. Then you're faced with a different question. Where do the boundaries of Sonlis lie? I can promise you, there is no easy answer to this question. Cut it too fine, and you're risking angering the most powerful man in the kingdoms, and annoying your overlord for causing unnecessary conflict. Be too generous, and you're cutting into your king's income, and you risk angering him instead. On top of this, the treaty clearly states that one-third of the dominion of Sonlis goes to Guntram not just the incomes. The Merovingian ruling class had been slowly waking up to the importance of having nobles in disputed areas to represent the interests of their faction. The previous struggle over Marseille had made this very clear to both Guntram and Childebert. So, new question, how do you give up one-third of a dominion over a small town? Is Guntram going to send his own official into the area? If so, this will probably cause more conflict. If Sonlis is only part of your holdings, you might have to now focus more on the town in case the new official 
takes more than he is entitled to. And what exactly is he entitled to? Are you going to divide the small town street by street? Can he dispense justice one third of the time? Good maps are non-existent, so how are you going to divide the surrounding lands? Inevitably, you know this is going to end up in a struggle over authority, as disaffected local landowners or merchants or clergy will turn to this new official to undermine you and attempt to sidestep your will. Now, I could go on with these issues, but hopefully you see that there are big problems with such simple proclamations. In some ways, it is actually easier to divide a bigger city like Marseille or Paris, but there are other complications in these cases. The Merovingian system was just not built for such specific divisions, so it is absolutely no surprise that Guntram had found something to object to within a year of the treaty being signed. Now, let's talk about the return of Guntram's men. This was a major part of the treaty, as Childebert had been accepting men from Guntram's court for years as a way to undermine the authority of the senior king. And, to a lesser extent, Guntram was doing the same. Back in the day, Ludes were tied to the king that they had sworn to, but with the rise of the nobility and the ever-shifting politics of the kingdoms, these old traditions had been eroded. At its core, the treaty was a conservative document, and one of the ways it sought to limit conflict was by restoring the old traditions and having each king return the men that they had allowed to join them. For Guntram, this was not particularly cumbersome. He had enough power to let these men go. For Childebert, it was a bit more complicated. There were really two main problems for Childebert. First, many of the men who had left Guntram for his service had good reasons for doing so and did not want to return. Think about how our now-deceased friend Guntram Boso had acted early in his career. He had proven that a noble could survive their royal's displeasure by bouncing between the courts and taking advantage of the divisions in the Merovingian kingdoms. This had quickly become a core part of noble politics, and many had followed his example. These men weren't necessarily criminals, but neither were they particularly keen on returning and facing Guntram's anger over their disobedience and whatever thing had made them flee in the first place. The other problem was Childebert's. A lot of his prestige at this point relied on the fact that he was willing to stand up to his powerful uncle and prove himself to be an independent king. These men had joined his court because he had offered them protection from Guntram, and in doing so, he had shown that he could successfully defy his uncle. These men were also bargaining chips. If Guntram really wanted them back, Hildeberg could use that to gain other concessions. But now, that was over. If he abided by the terms of the treaty, he had to make all of these men return to Guntram's lands. This was the compromise that he had made. He was giving up part of his own power and accepting a more clearly junior role to Guntram in exchange for being unambiguously named 
Guntram's heir. A pretty good choice overall, but it is perhaps not a surprise that he dawdled a little on fulfilling his end of the bargain. Now, as you can see, the issues in Merovingian politics were difficult to settle fully, and even good faith attempts to do so and prevent conflict, like the treaty, ended up creating new avenues for conflict. A lot of this was simply down to the structure of Merovingian society. The importance of power and prestige to defend oneself in this dangerous system meant that people at all levels were incentivized to be more confrontational. On top of this, the confusing mess of administration and authority outside of the royal courts lay fertile ground for misunderstandings and conflicts to grow. Some have remarked on the surprising violence of the Merovingian period, but I think it is just as surprising that the period wasn't actually more violent. And the key to keeping a lid on this boiling pot of conflict was Gregory and the bishops of the realm. As we've discussed before, with the help of our old friend historian Helmut Reimers, the bishops and clergy of this period played an absolutely crucial role in the Merovingian system. They were the mediators, cultural brokers, and basically the only competent diplomatic agents in this period. If you remember back to episode 42, A Struggle to Survive, you can see just how terrible the kings were at de-escalating conflict. When Childebert and Guntram had tried to negotiate through the walls of Paris, it had gone absolutely terribly, and their posturing and heavy-handed demands had poisoned the relationship between the two kings for years. The clergy worked as effective mediators for a variety of reasons. First, perhaps most obviously, they were not caught up in the same kind of aggressive posturing that was necessary for the Frankish ruling class. That is not to say that they simply avoided conflict. We've seen Gregory go toe-to-toe -to -toe with various members of the nobility and royalty several times, but they didn't have to indulge in the same tough-guy warrior image due to their spiritual nature. This made it easier for them to talk to these different groups right off the bat. There is another obvious point to make, education. Compared to those around them, the clergy were far, far, far more educated. Many were schooled in the traditional forms of Roman rhetoric and debate, as well as other useful subjects like history. This not only put them ahead of their contemporaries, but provided them with a certain authority in diplomatic situations. Speaking of authority, the church was basically the only institution not directly under the control of the Merovingian kings. Of course, we know that in practice, the clergy were deeply enmeshed in politics, and many were heavily associated with different royal factions, but the official neutrality of the church made them ideal ambassadors and negotiators. There was also the inherent authority they had as men of God. As we've discussed before, Christianity was a fairly new and raw religion, especially for the new Frankish converts. 
the church's power was not only due to their land and secular authority, it was also due to their spiritual authority. Gregory wasn't the only one in this time to believe that God and the saints had massive powers over the day-to-day world, and he wasn't the only one to believe in the spiritual power of bishops. These men had a respected power that was entirely unique to them. All of these factors, and a few others like their cultural power that we've discussed before, added together to make the clergy indispensable to the Merovingian political system. If these small spurs of conflict were going to be prevented from drowning the kingdoms in constant war, then the clergy needed to be there to inject some calm and rational discussion into the mix. We've already seen Gregory work very hard to prevent conflict from escalating and protect those who might be persecuted. He was far from the only bishop who saw it as their duty to prevent violence. So, let's see this diplomatic work in practice. Gregory is now at the court of Guntram. The king objects to Gregory's message of respect and peace from Childebert, claiming that he had been breaking the terms of the treaty. When Gregory assures him that the agreements over Saint-Lys and the return of his men can be upheld, Guntram has the treaty read out in full. Now, all of this is pretty formulaic. Gregory is playing the part of a reasonable peacemaker, while Guntram is engaging in the necessary posturing to protect his reputation. It is after the treaty has been fully read that the interesting stuff really begins. Guntram exclaims, May I be struck by the judgment of God if I break any of the provisions contained in that. He then turns to one of Gregory's companions, Bishop Felix, and says loudly, Tell me, Felix, is it really true that you have established warm, friendly relations between my sister Brunhild and that enemy of God and man, Fredegund. This is a clear attempt to tarnish the legitimacy of Gregory's assurances from the Austrasian royals by insinuating that they were working with their old enemy just to undermine him. But Guntram was not as capable in these situations as the bishops. When Felix replies that he has not been able to establish good relations, because, of course he hasn't, the two women hate each other, Gregory smoothly interjects before the king could continue his tirade. Quote, The king need not question the fact that the friendly relations, which have bound them together for so many years, are still being fostered by them both. That is to say, you may be quite sure that the hatred which they have borne each other for so many a long year, far from withering away, is still as strong as ever. End quote. Using just a dab of sarcasm, Gregory manages to refute Guntram's claim easily. Now, let's hear him turn it around. He continues, quote, Noble king, it is a great pity that you cannot bring yourself to be less kindly disposed towards Queen Fredegon. We have so often remarked that you receive her envoys with more consideration than you give ours, end quote. Do we see what he did there? 
instead of objecting to Guntram's absurd claims. Gregory deftly turns the situation around by making a joke of the whole thing and putting Guntram on the back foot over Fredegund. Guntram is forced to scramble, claiming that he was only receiving Fredegund's envoys to please Childebird, a desperate claim that now seems laughable in the face of Gregory's comments. He then claims that he had never offered genuine friendship to a woman who had sent men to murder him. In a few sentences, Gregory has managed to undermine Guntram's anger with humour, refute his outlandish claims without accusing him of lying, and turn the tables on him so effectively that he had accused Fredegund publicly and distanced himself from her. Childebert had sat outside of Paris with an army and completely failed to get Guntram to accuse Fredegund. Gregory had done it just like that. But the lesson is not quite over. Before Guntram could find his feet in the argument, the bishop Felix interjects. He moves the conversation along, making it seem like Gregory's worries about Childebert are now resolved. Instead, he introduces an entirely new issue, the potential marriage of Childebert's sister, Clodesund, to the Visigothic king, Recared. We know Childebert had been open to such a match, but had refrained from accepting the proposal due to Guntram's firm opposition to the Visigothic royals. Technically, he was still at war with the Visigoths, and he had made clear that he would not accept any improvement in relations. But now he was on the back foot. By introducing it in this manner, Felix undermined Guntram's claims. By introducing a whole new issue where Childebert had objectively shown Guntram great respect by deferring the decision to the senior king. Guntram couldn't return to the previous discussion without seeming petty, so he falls into Felix's trap, responding to say that he couldn't agree to send Clodison to Spain after the fate of her sister Ingrid. He had already given this excuse in the past, and the bishop was ready for it. He knew that this was a thin excuse, especially since Ingun had been killed by Recared's Arian parents, and the new king was a Catholic. He thus informs Guntram that Recared was, quote, very keen to prove himself guiltless in this accusation. By linking these two issues that really have nothing to do with one another, the bishops had backed Guntram into a corner. If he now refused, he would seem petty and obstinate in front of his court. So he agreed to the marriage, provided that Guntram abides by his treaty obligations. This he framed as a concession, but was of course what the bishops had been arguing for from the start. They then continued in this vein, not allowing Guntram to leave, because the situation had forced him to admit that Childebert had good intentions. They tried to get him to send troops to support Childebert's invasion of Italy. He managed to wriggle out of this, arguing that the ongoing plague made a campaign too risky for his troops. But this was probably expected by Felix, and in making the request, he had managed to underline the fact that Childebert was fighting with the Eastern Romans, 
burnishing the young king's prestige. Gregory then interjects again, trying to convince Guntram to give up his plans for a wider church council. He would have strengthened his hand by proving that he could summon churchmen even from outside his realm. Gregory does fail in this, with Guntram holding firm to a full church council. It is my suspicion that the bishops did not expect these later demands to work, but on each point, they managed to make the senior king bend at least a little, sometimes a lot. Gregory relates that when they dined together later, Guntram was still making noise about Childebert's apparent broken promises. After being outfoxed by Gregory and Felix, there was little else he could do but make noise. This interaction is a perfect example of diplomacy from the bishops. We weren't only trying to prevent conflict, we can see how Gregory manipulated Guntram to also weaken Fredegund's position in the realm. But they did a masterful job of deflecting the senior king's anger and quashing any immediate danger of escalation from Guntram. He could now do little but allow the bishops to return to Childebert and give his nephew more time to fulfill his treaty obligations. This is actually the essence of what the bishops achieved in this period. They could not solve all the issues and prevent any conflict from arising. To try such a feat would be a fool's errand in this period. Instead, they deferred any potential escalation, allowing time for Childebert to either fix the issue or for something else to come up and distract Guntram. These men were not a panacea for the system, more like a painkiller calms everyone down, however briefly. They could not work magic and solve issues inherent to the political life of the kingdoms, but through their work, they could prevent small issues flaring up into bigger confrontations. Without them, such small issues would always be in danger of doing so thanks to the confrontational nature of Merovingian politics. I hope you've enjoyed this return to Merovingian politics. As we can see, big treaties and broad negotiations are still not the core of Merovingian diplomacy. It is still small groups of mostly clergy working to keep the peace and soothe the egos of the pugnacious Franks. Next week, we're going to discuss marriage, specifically the way that the Merovingians used marriage for political purposes and why there were so many foreign matches, but few domestic ones. See you then.